If you've worked the ninth step and had the promises, you know what a miracle this program can be. And uh, that's what our, our speakers are here to tell us about, their experience, strength, and hope with this topic. And then uh, they'll each talk for a while, and then we'll open it up for people out there to ask questions and uh, see if you can uh, stump the experts. <laughs> so please welcome Brian and Kent. That, that's funny. <laughs> all right, all right, Atlanta. I see where you're coming from. <laughs> Could you get a bigger podium, please? <laughs> Thanks, John. I'm Brian. I'm alcoholic. Uh, it's been sober since uh, March 6th of '93, and I'm grateful to be sober. Home group is the Smoking Gun Big Book Step Study. It's in Dallas. It's a stupid name, but it is the name. Uh, <laughs> I didn't pick it. I wanted stove touchers. They wouldn't allow that, so. I know it's a good one. I, I, uh, you can steal it. I, I, I'm really grateful to be here. I, I'm honored to be here. I'm honored to be invited. Uh, Kathy, I thank you for the invite. And, uh, you know, I've known John and Kathy for quite a while. And I'm a little emotionally wrecked right now. <laughs> Kent just wrecked me, so. Uh, last time I met Kent nine years ago, like I'm looking at him like he hasn't aged in nine years. Like seriously, I've shrunk about two inches, which is really and I got bigger ears and uh, and all the hair on the top of my feet because I come from a land of hobbits was uh, has fallen off. So and he said, "Experts, well, well, I know Kent. Come on, won't speak for Kent, but I'm not an expert on anything." <laughs> Uh, I robbed four banks. I was an expert at that. I thought until I got caught, and then uh, so I, I, ninth step to me is one of the it's one of my favorite topics. I think of all the healing that has happened to me in uh, 29 years. I've been blessed to be sober is through the uh, good sponsorship to make amends and heal the damage I've done. Because you know the spiritual law, and the and the law is if I'm chained, I'm chained to anybody that I haven't cleaned it up. You know, I'm chained to anybody I resent. I'm chained to anybody that I've harmed, and I've dragged that around my whole life. And until I was blessed to get a sponsor to take me through these steps, uh, I was never truly free. I was never free. And I can say right there, right here, right now, I absolutely owe no amends to anybody, uh, mainly because I made a few the other day. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to talk mechanical or mechanics. I know some people want to hear about all that, and maybe Ken can talk about it, but I'm not a, I'm not a teacher. I had a mentor named Don P. Uh, who told me one time, he said, there's way too many teachers in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, we're storytellers. And I think the stories tell everything. And uh, so I will tell you some of the how I operate, but I'm really going to tell you some stories. Because I think, you know, everybody in my life and my family except my oldest brother is dead. My mom and dad... My brother died of COVID two years ago. My other brother died of leukemia when he was young, seven years old. And, and now my oldest brother, who's the last, has a stage four glioblastoma. Well, anyway, it's terminal. And I'm healed with all of them. And so when I look at amends, when I think about amends, I, I, um, I got sober in Tucson and I was going to move to Maine. And my sponsor, the only thing he really asked me after I started, I got sober and I moved, left this treatment center and Moved in this in the halfway house, 
um, with my girlfriend, who I met in treatment, by the way. <laughs> who, just so you know, and this is why Ken just kind of hit my heart. I, we just divorced after 26 years. And he, you know, it's been two and a half years of really hard, hard life. And he just said something to me that, I don't know, I don't want to look in his eyes anymore because it just hit me, you know. <laughs> the way I was taught to make amends and how I was uh, uh, walked through this process. Now, just, this is a little mechanical. I'm just going to tell you how it was done. I was to make a list after my fifth step or after my sixth and seventh to make a list. I pulled it off my inventory and then made a list of all the people I'd harmed. And I was to put them on index cards. This is how he had me do it. And I was to write, like, in one corner, willing, not willing. I know where they are. I don't know where they are. Again, this is 93. Cell phones really weren't invented. Uh, and then I was to write the harm, specifically the harm that I had caused. And then I was to go out into the world and knock on doors and make these amends. And in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, in my haste to get here, uh, when we get into that detail, I left my big book on the counter and I was 15 minutes away and I was going to be 15 minutes late anyway, so I said, I'll just go raw and Kent has his. But I'll tell you, in the book, it's really clear about criminal offenses, if you owe money, uh, enemies, uh, Family situations, you know, spouses, they, they clear out, but just like GSO, they never give you a real answer. Like, if you call GSO about anything, you know, can I bring a gun into a meeting? They're like, they won't tell you yes or no. They don't tell you any, they just, you know. So I've always believed, and my sponsor has taught me, this is a real spiritual, this is a spiritual act, and it must be done with care. And the ripple effect that I made, the ripple effect of me robbing banks and robbing drug dealers and hurting the people I hurt, goes far, and I believe that the ripple effect of God's love and kindness goes equally far, if not beyond. And uh, and I truly believe that. I, uh, I'm a man who got sober when he was 30, and I was homeless, uh, and I just spent seven years in prison, and there wasn't a person in Tucson, Arizona, that had anything to do with me. Not one person wanted to talk to me. Not one person had my back. The two people that I loved the most, friends of mine, died while I was in prison. And I remember just being alone. And I'm going to uh, tell you some stories. And so, I, so basically how I was taught is I would go and make an appointment and I would let them know I'm here to clean up. You know, I, I'd go through what it says in the book, you know. You know I'm sober today and, and, and I, I'm doing this process called the 12 Steps. And through this process, I made a list of people that I've caused harm to. And you landed on that list, unfortunately. And I would like the ability to, to clean that up if you're willing to hear that. And and I'll tell you, I only had one or two that were not willing to do that. And, uh, and I'll also tell you that I had people on my list that I owed no amends to. And my sponsor, I couldn't even find the wrongs. I would just say I was a jerk or whatever. And he said, these people, and there's a stack of them, he said, you owe no amends to these people. You cause no harm. Your ego just wants them to see the new and improved Brian. <laughs> and you get to sit with some of the harms you've done to people by your actions that maybe were not direct but indirectly. So if you go to Tucson, there are some people, if you say my name, the man I am today, they won't even recognize. And uh, I'll tell you some stories. I think the stories are the best. And I, you know, my mentor said, if you really want to know God, get to know his kids. If you really truly want to know God, get to know his kids. I believe that's true in sponsorship. But I also believe that's true when you sit knee to knee with someone I've harmed. And I look in their eye and I tell them exactly what I've done. And, 
you know, ask them how to clean it up. And I'm going to tell you another thing. I also believe there's two things I have learned. One is there's a, there's a lie that goes around AA. And I hear it and I repeated it for 10 years. And the lie was, someone give me on the time. Were you on 20 minutes, 15? Um, which was we don't say we're sorry. And I don't know why people say that. I have no idea because it's not in the book. In fact, if you read the big book, it says twice. Bill says twice we say we're sorry. One time, he says, a remorseful mumbling won't fill the bill. And so I'm a man who believes that an amend without, an, without a sorry is not an amend, and a sorry without an amend obviously is not an amend. I believe that because that's what the book says. And not everybody did I have to say sorry to, but a lot of people needed to know that I was truly sorry for my behavior as long as I fixed it. You know, if I throw a, hit a baseball through your window and walk in and say, hey, sorry, dude, walk away, that's not it. But if I say, hey, I'm really sorry that I was irresponsible and I hit that and then let me, and I fix the window and I pay for the window, then that's the healing. Uh, everything in this process is a direct attack to my, to my ego. Every, the, the, the idea of saying I was, r- 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 I couldn't even say wrong for a long time, you know. <laughs> the, the, the fact that I, to say I was wrong, and I'm not saying I have a big ego. Like, I'm not saying, like, oh, my ego's the biggest. But I'm pretty sure my ego would kill a lesser man. I do know that. <laughs> you have to sit with that one for a while. You'll get it later on at dinner. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you some stories. My first year before I moved to the state of Maine, I was in Tucson. And I robbed all my banks in Tucson. I did all my robberies in Tucson. My sponsor asked me to stay one year. Not that one year was a magical number, but he said, you're going to be 3,000 miles away. And it's going to be hard to get, you know, back here. And so I, I got busy. And me and my former wife, Chloe, would get in my Plymouth Duster, my new newcomer car, right, overheated. Uh, and the only way you can drive an overheated car is to turn the heater on. And when you live in Tucson, Arizona, it's 110. You've got the heater on and the windows down. And, and I was as happy as I'd ever been. I was on fire. I, I felt life flowing through me. And I'm walking into Walmarts and I'm walking into places I stole money. And I'm doing exactly as it said. I remember... My parole officer, uh, how I got to AA was I ended up drinking one more time at this halfway house and he was going to send me back to prison. But he didn't. He sent me to, he sent me to you people. He sent me to AA. Broke his anonymity. And so I'd be sitting in the parking lot praying with my girlfriend at the time and I'd call up him or, you know, before I left from the halfway house, I'd call from the phone there and I'd say, hey, Tim, I'm going to go make some amends. If, if they arrest me, will you, uh, not violate me? And he'd say this, and thank God he did. He said, I don't know. I guess we'll see. Because I didn't need a parachute. If I had a parachute, it's easy to walk in and expose myself and just say, okay, God, you have me. And uh, I'm going to tell you that probably the most profound amend I ever made. When When I was five years old, in the 60s, right? I'm 60. I know you guys think I'm 30, but I'm, when I was 60, <laughs> my brother died of leukemia. And I was the youngest of four boys. And I watched what that did to my mom. I watched, I didn't, as a young man, but growing up, it destroyed my mom. Her drinking went way out of control. And on my brother's anniversary of his death and his birthday, my mom would go on three day benders and it just ripped our family apart. And uh, the last time I went to prison, the last time I went to prison, I was on a violation. I went back for a year. I did six years straight, and then I got out, and my parents brought me home, and they did what every parent would do, what I do for my kids. And 
And then I screwed that up, and I ended up going back, and I was waiting for her. And, and, and you need to know this. My first year, six years in prison, I got a I got a $20 money order every week from my father, every week, from my commissary, with a little note saying, I love you, son, or, you know, whatever. And uh, when I was 10 years sober, and I made amends to my dad by this time, I always thought he was trying to control my intake, like my commissary intake, like trying to control my, you know, my ice cream or whatever, right? And my dad said something to me. I'm so blind, I can't see it. He said, you ever wonder why I send you $20 every week? And said like 100 a month or 80 a month or 600, you know. I said, yeah, I thought you were trying to control. He said, no, son. He goes, I just know you were in a place and you were so alone that you needed something every week from someone that loved you. And I think he's trying to control me. I can't see the love when it's in my face. And they called mail call. I got violated. I was on the run from the feds. And when you're on the run from the feds, they send marshals. And I won't even get into that story. It was a nightmare. I assaulted a federal marshal, which is ridiculous. She was a woman, and she beat me up. And uh, <laughs> I'm not sure why that's funny, but, you know, <laughs> it's my amusement, you know. Um, anyway, they called my name. And I went to get my mail. And I was looking for my money order, and there was not a money order, and there was a letter. It was a letter from my mom and dad, but it was my mom's handwriting. And the letter said, everything that should have been said. Al-Anon, I've got a hold of my mom, and this Al-Anon lady told my mom, you're killing your son. You need to let him go. And the letter, it's a long letter. I only have three things that I got from prison that I left. One was my prison ID, just because it, I really looked good then. And... uh <laughs> It was in the 80s. I had flowing hair. It was just beautiful. And then there was a, a, a letter from my friend who committed suicide. And I'll tell you about his amends. And then there was a, um, this letter that my parents wrote me. And it said, you know, everything it said, it said, you know, it, 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 I love you too much to watch you die in front of us. And you can no longer come home. And we can no longer financially support you. And when you get out, you're on your own. And a year later, she meant what she said. I ended up on the streets and selling plasma. And if you haven't sold plasma, you really haven't hit bottom yet. And because uh, plasma, you know, you have, you have to be 110 pounds to sell plasma. And I'm five foot one. I weighed about 106. I put rocks in my pocket, stood in line, and uh, and then I judged everybody else in line. What a bunch of losers, you know? And they like next, you know. I made amends to my mom. I was nine months sober, and I. I was told to make amends separately from my mom and my dad, and it was my mom's amends. And I sat down, and I, I had it all figured out, all the money I owed them, all the harms, and I was clear about all that. And one of the ways I make amends is I ask if there's anything else I've done to harm you, which I think a lot of people do. And, and then I ask her, is there anything you'd like to share with me on how my behavior affected you? And um, my mom looked at me. And she said, and tears her eyes, she just looked at me and she said, Brian, you're my baby. It was easier to bury Chucky than it was to write you that letter. It was easier to bury my son than to have to write you that letter. Now, when I came in, I was a hard man, not violent, but hard on the outside, and that pierced my heart in a way that nothing ever has, that my mom just told me 
my behavior was worse than her son dying. That she had to write that. I had to make my mom disown her son. I remember, I remember crying. I just cried. I just did not. I remember holding my mom. And I never wanted to be that son. And I asked her about that. And she said, Brian, when Chucky got cancer, leukemia killed eight out of ten kids. And we just came to the doctors and said, please fix our baby. But with you, I had a choice. You would have never gotten that letter if it wasn't for your father. And you need to thank him for that because every day on Monday, I put it in the mailbox. I go out to smoke a cigarette, rush out to the mailbox and pull it out. She said, I did that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I I couldn't do it. And on Friday, your father put his hand on my shoulder and said, let him go. And I slept for three days, cried for three days. In the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about selfish and self-centeredness. That is the core of who I am in my illness. I will do damage deeply to the people I love the most. I never wanted that. I never wanted to be that son. And when my mom died, I remember holding her hand. I was the only one there. My brothers had gone to bed and it was... Four in the morning, she took her last breath. And I remember, and I don't know if she heard me. I don't know. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. But I remember holding her hand and just laying my head on her chest, just saying, Mom, I love you so much, and thank you so much for bringing me into this world twice. Through birth in 1963 and on the day that you stood up against my addiction, my alcoholism. And I know that she went to where she went free, free. Completely free. I, uh, my brother was seven, I was five. You would have never thought I owed him amends. And I used to get asked to do Al Anon. I was the always, I was the token Al Anon speaker, you know, the AA, you know, they have one AA speaker, they always get that one guy. And I was, I brought such hope to the moms of the Al Anons and, so they'd always invite me, you know, like, because my life's a wreck. And I go, oh, look, he can do it. My son will do it, you know. And uh, For a long time, people would say, I'm really sorry your brother died. And I would do these things like, yeah, it's okay. I didn't really know him. And I uh, had learned through my mentor, Don, that the steps as we progress bring us into this vital sixth sense, which is this intuitiveness that we must tap into, what I call the whispers of God. And we must listen to the whispers of God. And the only way I can hear the whispers is if my house is clean. Because God never yells. He never screams. He doesn't talk in like a Darth Vader or a Yoda voice. It's just one voice, you know. My intuitive, I had an intuitive thought once, driving down the road. I had no money. I owed a lot of money. And intuitive thought was, you should rob that bank. The voice sounded the exact same as this voice when I woke up one day. The voice came out of meditation. The voice said, you should fly to California and make amends to your brother. Logically, it didn't make sense. I was five. He was seven. What possibly could I owe him amends for? But I listened to the whispers, and I honored it, and I asked my wife, then wife, and I said, you want to fly to California? I grew up in Stockton, California. Anyone from California? Do you know Stockton? Yes. It's a good place to be from. It's a uh, very... My parents moved out of Stockton so I wouldn't go to prison. <laughs> Little did they know they were bringing me with them. But 
it's, it's that kind of town. And uh, I flew out to California. He's buried in this town called Lodi, this big, big cemetery. And I walk in, and I ask the lady. I said, hey, my brother was buried here uh, back in 1967. And she said, well, what was his name? It says Charles Percox. And she looks him up, and she gets this map, and she's writing it down. And she hands it to me. And she says, your brother's buried in lullaby land. And my knees buckled because it hit me at a core. He's buried in lullaby land. I said, what is that? She said, that's where we buried all the kids back then. And I remember walking to his, to his grave, like one years old, six months old, nine years old, eight years old. They're just kids. Never had any chance. And then I knew why I was there. And I sat in front of my brother's grave and I told my brother, I said, brother, I love you so much. I wish I would have got to know you. My promise to you and my amends to you is that my life right now, I've taken it for granted. I've always taken it for granted. You never had to get a, you never rode a bike. You never kissed your first girl. You never, you didn't get to do anything I got to do. And I took my life for granted. And from this day forward, you will look down and say, that's my little brother. And I'm proud of him. The healing that happens is so strong. And what I find is that most people, when they come to me and they're 15, 20 years sober, whatever, and they say, hey, will you sponsor me? The first question, I ask two questions. Where are you being dishonest in your life and what amends have you not made? Because if people stop making amends, somewhere during the process, they start to get awakened. Because Alcoholics Anonymous has done slowly for me what booze did quickly. If you look at the promises, that's what booze did for me. I know a new freedom, a new happiness. Fear of people leaves me. That's and then all of a sudden we put the brakes on that and we start helping people and we leave that aside. I believe it's meant to be completed. And I'll end. End with this. My buddy Dave. The night before I robbed banks. I told Dave, hey, I got a great idea. I said, I need money. He said, yeah, me too. I said, well, I got a good idea. If I ever say that to you and I'm in, my, in a run, don't ever listen to that. <laughs> and he goes, well, well what, what's the idea? I said, we should go rob that Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I'd stolen a gun from my girlfriend's dad's gun shop, and I had a ski mask, and it's 19, early 80s, ACDC back in black. My roommate's car, we were going to go. We were jam. We are taking this place out. And... uh Anyway, we didn't rob it. We ended up eating a meal there. Anyway, so. I mean, I, I've got numerous nicknames. One of them is three-piece. Three-piece is not because I wear suits and look good in them. It's because I ate a three-piece original recipe. Um, but here's why I owe Dave amends. David, David was one of the few guys who wrote me in prison. He was one of the few guys who stayed in contact with me. And uh, when I left, when I was going to prison, I gave him all. I was a, I was a drug dealer. And I, I wasn't a good drug dealer. In fact, if you're new and you're looking for a job, don't do this. I felt the drug I was really addicted to. And I'm alcoholic. I'm a real alcoholic. But you don't go to prison for, for being an alcoholic. There's other things involved. And I set him up for success. I thought I was doing him a favor. Four years into my prison sentence, I found myself in solitary confinement for nine months. 
8 by 10. Tell, you'll hear the story tomorrow, so if you want to hear the story, stay around tomorrow. If you want to leave early, you'll miss it. And I got a letter. He died. He committed suicide. He did, he did exactly what I did. He got in debt, but instead of him robbing banks, he put a gun in his mouth. And I remember sitting in that cell. I was 26 years old. I couldn't even shed a tear. I couldn't even have a feeling. But I knew inside that I had started that ball rolling. And when I got out, I went to his graveside and, uh, and I remember sitting, just kneeling in front of his grave. And this guy was like a friend of mine. This guy's like one of my best friends. And I set a ball rolling that maybe not directly, but definitely connected to this man committing suicide. And I, uh, I made this amends. And there was nothing dramatic about this amends except that I laid it all out there. And I told him that I was truly wrong for doing that and... And if I could ever do anything to make it right. And what I got was how I could make that right was to continue doing what I was doing and continue helping those I help, continue going into the prison systems and sponsoring men and taking them through the book, continue living this spiritual life. And then years later, there's three of us running the streets, that me and Dave and this other guy, Paul, and we were called the Three Amigos. And uh, Paul's dad owned a construction firm, and I robbed a bank with his van. It's the worst getaway that reclined construction could sit six miles away. <laughs> and I was, uh, I heard Paul had died. He committed suicide. And David committed suicide. And I was standing. I remember asking, like, why me? And why not them? Why is it? You know, and I, and I believe in the grace of God. I believe that God's grace. But I also believe that grace not accepted means nothing. And the acceptance of grace is what Kent had talked to me just now two minutes ago, that you keep walking through, you stand strong, you call people, you help people, you stay on this path. And I was at this facility. I was touring. I was, it, was, it was an industry I'm still in, kind of, but I was touring. There was a big staircase. It was a metal art, and it was like hope, love, kind. It was an adolescent treatment center. And I asked the lady who was giving me the tour, I said, who made that? Because my sponsor, the very first sponsor I had, took me to the steps, was a metal artist. And she said, oh, a guy named John Klein. That was Paul's dad. And she said, I'm really good friends with him. And she called him and said, there's a gentleman here named Brian, and he would like to meet with And I talked on the phone, and he was 75 years old. He said, I said, could I have coffee with you? He said, I would love to have coffee with you. And I sat in front of this man who had to bury his son a few years ago, and we sat together, and we cried, and he told me, he said, you know, Brian, I always wondered what happened to you. Like, I always wondered if you were alive. Because one of the things he taught me is when I got arrested on my first bank robberies, I got bailed out, and then I committed a bank robbery while I'm bail because, you know, that's what you do when you're crazy. But when I got out, he gave me my job back, and he gave me my job back because of this. There's a lesson I've never left me. I asked Paul, can I get my job back? He said, yeah, my dad wants to talk to you. I stepped in his office, sat down. He said, so you got arrested for three bank robbers? I said, yes. He said, I have one question for you. I said, yes, sir. Did you rob those banks? And I said, yes. He said, okay, show up to the work site tomorrow at 630. 
And I started to walk out, and he said, Brian, stop. I said, yes. He said, do you wonder why I said that? I said, yeah, I'm really confused. He said, because if you'd have said no, I wasn't going to let you have your job back. Because I know if the FBI arrested you, there was a reason for that. And they know, and they don't miss it. And he says, so I don't know what's going on with your life, but I want to help you. And that man and I stay in contact on a monthly basis. And he is forever grateful that I showed up in his life just to show that an act of kindness can move forward. And that I was able to turn the corner because all he knows is he has a dead son. And I could go on and on and on about stories that have touched my heart, that have freed people up. And I've had people tell me in my face. What time is it? I got three more minutes? Okay. I love Kent, by the way, you know. Look, when we spoke up at the mountain, if you, if you never heard Kent, you got to go tonight. It's, it's going to get on fire here. It's going to be, you won't be, if you're asleep coming in, you won't be asleep when you leave, trust me. I totally forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I absolutely forgot exactly what I was going to say. And I can tell you right now, it's probably going to be the most amazing thing you ever heard. It was going to be, you were going to be like, oh my God, that is amazing. <laughs> I'm 60. Clearly, my mind is going somewhere. I'm trying to bring it up. It's not. I'm not supposed to say it. But I can tell you this. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for everything Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me. And I'm grateful for the men and women who walked into my life. And if I find that amends somewhere here, I may even jump up and say it. But I'm grateful. And I'm, I, I'm, I beg you to get a sponsor and walk through. Oh, this is what it was. <laughs> so I got to go quickly before I forget. In the big book, it talks about enemies. They're the hardest to make amends to. I was engaged to this woman named Carrie. I was love this woman. I've loved two women in my life. My, my former wife, who just divorced two years ago. Like my soulmate, okay? And, and, and this girl, Carrie. And uh, when I got arrested, we were supposed to have breakfast that morning. She came in. The house was torn up. If I had taken me away, and she was devastated. And then she was going to stay with me through my whole sentence, which I believed. We were in 20s. I mean, I don't know. I was in, they sent me to Michigan like she's in Tucson. Anyway, one of my good friends, one of my roommates started dating her. This guy named Johnny. I won't say his name. Johnny V. And uh, I didn't say his last name. I'm just V, you know. And uh, I hated this guy. He started dating her. And I was just so, I wrote so much inventory. But I owed him amends because I stole from him. And uh, one day, my first sober job, you know, I'm nine months sober, selling neon sculptures on the street corner in Tucson, Arizona at nighttime. It's a really good job, you know, <laughs> generator, these little statues, you know. And I was a killer salesman, man. If you got out of the car to buy one, you were buying one. Because you don't just stop the, I mean, usually you were drunk and then I could just maneuver. But one night, it was, it was in December. And so I was in December, it was almost nine months, ten months. And uh, I owed this guy, Johnny, he was in Vegas. And I owed him amends and I didn't, you know. I didn't know because he was a dangerous guy and I, and I, and I really, I hated him because he, 
And all of a sudden, I'm getting ready to leave. I'm in my car on the corner. I loaded everything up, and this truck pulls up, and it's Johnny. And he looks at me, and I look at him. And I don't know if Johnny's carrying a gun. I don't know what his motive is. But he looks at me, and I said, come on over, and he steps in. And, and my amends to Johnny was this. My amends to Johnny was, when I found out he was dating Chloe, uh, that's my former wife, I can't get out of my mind, uh, dating Carrie, I spread rumors around my circle of friends that Johnny had ratted me out to the feds and told, that was the story I weaved. And so everybody believed it and everybody started splitting, they all split, Brian's people, Johnny's people. And Johnny ended up moving to Vegas because it got really bad for him. And he sat there and I told him I was wrong. And I asked him what I can do to make it right. And he said, this is what you can do to make it right. You can go to every single person that you spread that rumor to, every single person, and you can tell them that you lied. And I had to go to every single, there was nine of them, and I went to every single one of them. And about six out of nine of those people don't want me in their life ever again. Because they took a side and they gave up a friendship based on me. And they said, I appreciate you saying that, but you're a scumbag and don't ever talk to me again and don't ever run into me. And the last of all lasts, my brother who died two years ago, 2020, died of COVID. He molested me. He taught me how to commit criminal acts. He was, I loved him, but he was really a sick man. I could not make amends. Seven years could not make amends to him. I would amends because I'd break into his trailer and I'd steal stuff. I used to sit under, under this tree in my car and he lived in a trailer park, really bad neighborhood with a gun, bottle of whiskey, wanting to kill him. And I owed him amends. I couldn't do it for seven years. Couldn't do it. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. He did great harm. Him and his friends molested me. I was 10 years old. It should never have happened. I'm in the main state prison. I'm doing, I'm doing what we do, what we get taught in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went into the prison system for 15 years in Maine in maximum security. And I took men through the 12 steps in the prison. They had a fifth step room called Brian's fifth step room. And I went knee to knee with guys. We did three AA conferences in the prison. Like three days, I called guys like Kent. I would have called Kent. I called all these hotshot speakers, you know, cash your miles in because we're doing a conference in behind the walls. And they cash your miles. I said, I don't have any money, but you can stay in my basement. And uh, <laughs> one of those guys came up to me. Uh, I used to take groups to the steps. And he, I knew his crime. I knew exactly what his crime was. And I would have said, I have no judgment. He'd done harm to his two kids. And I don't care what you think about that. Everyone has an opinion on that. And I had an opinion, even though I thought I was free and I love everybody. He came up to me and he said to me, can I get in your next group? And I said to him, let me think about it. And I said those words and I could not pull them back. And I felt deep shame that I just said something. I violated a principle. And he bowed his head and he walked away. And I walked out of the prison that day. It's a Friday morning. And the weight was on me. And I got in the parking lot and I called my sponsor. And I said, I just violated a principle. I caused great harm to a man. He said, what would you do? And I said, this guy. And I told him. And I said, I'm going to have to think about it. He goes, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to go back in next Friday. And I'm going to tell that man it would be an honor to take you to the 12 steps. He says, that's the right thing to do. And you know what I like about it? And I'm like, no. What could you possibly like about that? I like that you have to wait a whole week before you can go in. And you get to know that in your prayer meditation that God sent you one of his sickest and you turned your back on him. And I came in that next week and I took that man through the 12 steps and it was the hardest fifth step 
I ever had to listen to. I'd sit in the parking lot for 20 minutes praying, please, God, help me not judge this man. Help me treat him with love. Help me have compassion. Help me be nothing but a beacon of your kindness. And I took that man to the steps, and I listened to everything, and I helped to make the amends where he could make him. And then he died real quick of pancreatic cancer. But the next time I went to Tucson, I was able to walk in and make amends to my brother. I was able to walk in and own it. And my sponsor said, do not expect him to make amends to you. And my brother never made amends to me. He took the money and he called me names and he said, get out of my trailer. And I left his trailer. But here's the deal. The shackles were cut. They were, they were cut and I was free. Any good things I've done in Alcoholics Anonymous is a representation of love's God's flowing through me. Any self-will or any behaviors that are really not aligned with God, that's me, okay? I love you very much. I love you so deeply. You guys were there for me when I came in, and I was a feral kid from Tucson who hated everybody and hated the world. And your love and your kindness broke through to a heart exterior and touched the heart that I never believed. I'm so grateful for that. Thank you so much. I was going to say, would you join me in the Lord's Prayer? <laughs> I'm going to let John raise this up. Well, no one laughs when he's tall. <laughs> Thanks, John. My name's Kent. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, sobriety date, May 18th, 1992. I'm a member of the Venice Group, Sandusky, Ohio. I... Uh, want to thank uh, the committee for the invitation to the kindness and hospitality that you've shown to Janelle and myself. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. Um, I'm going to get right to what we're doing here because um, this is a piece of spiritual business. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and, and through sponsorship, I know what I was like and what the people that I've worked with what are like. And and kind of like the immense thing, it seems to kind of fall into two different categories with people who come in here. First, there's people like me who the thought of that is so overwhelming, like I just push it away. Like the damage I've done, this, what I owe, like, dude, that ain't, it's not possible then you have some, and I've sponsored some like this, who want to start making amends today. <laughs> right? <laughs> I got a brand new guy right now. I got out of treatment last Saturday. And uh, all over the place, right? He's got the whole newcomer package, we like to call it, right? <laughs> Life on fire all around him, right? And... uh Really, really intelligent man, and you know, looking at the steps and like I'm getting ready to do that. And I go, whoa, whoa, okay. They number these for a reason, right? <laughs> the only requirement for the application of a step 
is that you have done the ones that precede it. Okay? Because if I'm new, right, what is my real motive in wanting to go say, I'm sorry, to make me feel better about me? This is about, this is a spiritual action, as Brian just got done talking about. And it is the first eight steps that prepare me spiritually to do this as the 12 steps intend as I become spiritually prepared to be of maximum service to God and the people around me. That's the intent. So when I get here, um, I don't look anybody in the eye. I, I know what kind of shoes everybody in AA wears because that's all I look at. I fell into the hands of some folk. Um, I refer to it as dictator sponsorship, uh, which was what I needed. I needed to be talked to plainly and clearly and simply. And I was told that there'll be a time for that. We're nowhere near that yet. Don't we want to stay in this day? Don't worry about what's down there. When that time comes, we'll have what we need. I believed it. There's a wonderful thing coming in here, and you hear people talk about these things. And if you're anything like me, um, I would all I'm I come here comparing. I always compare, right? And yeah, you might, but you don't know how. You don't know what I did. Brian, you don't know. Brian talked about, and I, I, we are, we tell stories in here. Um, and, and I always throw out that disclaimer when I do any kind of workshop. I am not an expert authority on the 12 steps. I do not perfectly live or apply the 12 steps perfectly. I do not, nor do I know anyone who does. Right? What I am is a guy who tries to persistently and consistently do the things that I'm taught. And I fall short on a daily, thank God, for 10 and 11. But the things that I did prior to the ninth step, being convinced of one and two, making a decision in three, understanding that that decision, right, in and of itself is a promise to submit to the rest of the process. How do I turn my will and my life over to the care of God? The remaining steps is what accomplishes that. Digesting some big chunks of truth about myself in four, 
stop living alone. I look how I love how Wilson used to say that. We got to stop living alone in five. In six, becoming entirely ready to let God remove these things that are what? That are blocking me from the sunlight of the spirit, from a a relationship with God and, and service to you. And when I'm not willing, say in the six step prayer, we ask God to help us be willing. Right? I don't want to be bombarding the gates of heaven with seven step prayers on a six step issue. Making a list in eight. Since we made it when we took inventory, right? You know, there were people who were not on my four-step list that I owed amends to, right? I, You know what? If, if I could victimize you, I don't resent you. I took stuff from a lot of people. I didn't resent them, right? So my sponsor said, let's go back, let's take a look at that, okay? So I added to that list. And then it again... Twice, step six and step eight, if we don't have a willingness to do so, we pray for it. Twice. There were people on my first list, A-step list, that I was not. I was not. One thing I know about amends is that they are to be taken under the guidance of sponsorship. I was not spiritually mature enough to be able to discern what I was doing. So I'm grateful that I was surrounded by people who could guide me. That's a beautiful thing about this. We don't do anything alone here. We don't do anything alone here. I, uh, Dr. Bob in his story said something that uh, described me perfectly. I live my life without regard for the rights, wishes, or privileges of any other human being, a condition that worsened this time past. If you really want to know about what, that's what I was like. Um, so full of me, I can't see you. Brian described that. Selfish, self-centered. Can be like that today. I have a sponsor today, his name's Bob, he lives in Nevada, and I was describing some stuff at work to him a few months ago, and uh, how people really weren't doing what they ought to, right? (laughs) (laughs) And he said to me, he said, hey, Kent, he said, you know those gray things you see out of the corner of your eyes? I said, yeah, Bob, what are those? He said, those are people. <laughs> I've been on both ends of this. And I know that when I get to this step, 
I need to amend, forgive, and sometimes both. We talk a lot about amend. We don't talk a lot about forgiving here, do we? One of the great things that happened to me um, through through this process, four, five, six, seven especially, is to see where I have no room to not forgive. My mom and dad... Uh, I'm not arrogant enough to stand up here and try to tell you how much I hurt somebody else. I can tell you what I did. I had a brother died when he was 16. And... When you watch your parents go through something like that, it changed them. My mother was a very spiritual person and kind of carried everybody through that but what I tell you this is that a lot of the light left my daddy's eyes I started drinking not long after that and uh, I'm one of those people who um was the perfectly tilled soil for the disease of alcoholism. My family is rife with it. I had been warned about staying away from it, and I picked it up, and, I mean, I'm gone. I mean, I went really, I went off the, the cliff really, really fast. The first time I got drunk, I got grounded for life. It was awful. I thought it was a little extreme, right? But see, I can't see, I cannot, I cannot see you. That was my mother's reaction because that's how much it scared and hurt my mother. I'm believing it's just punitive because you don't want me to have no fun. Do you understand? It's always about me. And that's where it all started and, um, You know, I was raised spiritually equipped with everything I needed, not sent to church, taken to church. I have learned nothing in the principles of of the 12 steps that I wasn't taught as a kid. Nothing. Spiritually principled living did not start in Akron in 1935. Those principles are ancient. And there's people who live like that every single day and do not expect a pat on the back for it either. (laughs) Read your AA history. 
And I was raised by such people. At the age of, I don't know, 17, um, it, it was a, you know, this thing is progressive. Um, I was a good in sports and I was a good student. So it's like I had some, um, I had some goodwill built up. So you know how they look at you and go, he's going through a phase. Right. After a few years go by, they start saying things like, there's something wrong with that boy. <laughs> my mother said that to my grandmother before. And she said, Mama, there's something wrong with that boy. Right. 17 years old, my mother cried when I came home, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I told my mother, I broke you. I broke you. And I said, I'm really disappointed because um, you're such a spiritual giant. It wasn't even that hard. I have a friend, Ralph, in Los Angeles. Some of y'all know Ralph. Ralph said that's the foulest thing he ever heard somebody say to their mother. But that's me at the age of 17. Went off to college, um, a, a five-year reign of Chronic alcoholism and just, I finally got out of there and every time I would think about it, after I got sober, it made me want to throw up. I couldn't even go back to where I went to school. I went there one time, got out of the car, walked a block, got back in the car and left. It made me physically ill to just be there. This is what I'm carrying around when I got to y'all. And I don't want to get into all this stuff. I do. If you crossed my path, I don't really think I need to say no more. If that's how I treated my mother, how you think I treated everybody else? My employer, my neighbors, people that... So I come in here and embark on this journey, and uh, something happened. Some things started to change. I got out of treatment center, and I had to go back to my mom and dad's house because I didn't have a safe place to go. Now, Brian talked about how his mother wrote the letter, and that's how she got free. My mother had already got free. My mother told me, I don't know where you're going, but you got to go someplace else. Because <laughs> uh, I'm not living like this. She said, Kenny, I don't know where you're going, but buddy, I'm going to tell you something. I ain't going with you. 1984. Had a heart attack and dropped dead. And my mother and father already lost their oldest son. Here I am, cardiac unit. This is all as a direct result of the use of alcohol and some of its cousins. <laughs> my mother standing in the doorway talking to the doctor crying. I done already lost my oldest son. I can't lose another one. You do what you got to do. They cut me out of a car 
corner of Columbus Avenue and Taylor Street in Sandusky, Ohio. Um, this is probably around 1990, and um, I should have been dead. Roof of the car smashed to the level of the door. I'm driving a car that ain't got no brakes. But when you drink like I drink, oh, that could wait till next week, can't it? <laughs> Jaws of life cut me out the car, not a scratch. It was a Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, I don't know about y'all, but my people go to church. And there was a policeman out there who was a friend of the family. He sees the car. Calls the church. Now, the church is in mid-session. Call the church. Secretary answers. Comes out in the middle of service. And I go to a big church, way bigger than this. Stop church. They stop the service to announce that Brother Kent has been in a terrible car accident. My grandmother is 91 years old and faints. My mother get up, run out. Now, meanwhile, back at the emergency room, under police guard, I think this was my sixth or seventh DUI. My mother walks around the curtain. See, I'm laying there trying to figure out how to stall long enough before they take me downtown to blow in the breathalyzer so I can get under. That's my, this is what I'm thinking about. My mom walks around, takes a look, and she says, mm-mm, not again. And she turns around and walks out. This, this is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the tip of the iceberg. So I get out of treatment, and I go to my mom and dad's house, and uh, my sponsor told me, we ain't there yet. Keep your mouth shut until I tell you to open it, and I want you to do something that you've never done in your 32 years of living. And I said, what is that? And he says, start trying to be the kind of son that they raised you to be. My mother was dying of cancer at this time, so I helped my dad take care of my mother. My dad worked at General Motors. I worked at Ford. We worked opposite shifts, so I would be with my mom, and then I would go to meetings. My mom just watching, just watching. And um, the first time I came and... and, uh, I got up, I worked midnights, and I got up, and I came in the living room, and my mom was watching TV. And um, and I said to my mom, hi, mom, how's your day? She was stunned. I had not had a decent conversation with my mother since I was 12 years old. All my mother ever heard from me after that was, give me this, give me that, it ain't my fault, it's your fault, give me this, give me that, I need this, I need that. Time went on, and my mom 
health was worsening. Now I'm under the guidance of sponsorship. I am not being told yet, we're at the ninth step, I'm not being told yet to go do your direct. See, because there's a thing you hear a lot now called living amends. Anybody ever heard of that? Where I come from, that ain't what the steps say. May direct amends wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. So a condition has been set. I was not taught to try to avoid doing what the book says under the guise of something else. What I was told to do was follow directions, and I was following my sponsor's direction. He said, now this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to your mother, and you owe them an untold amount of money. So the first thing I want you to do is go, and I want you to talk to your mother and tell them that you are willing to pay what you owe. I thought to myself, oh, this is sweet. Because I heard y'all. When y'all tried to pay your parents back, they said, oh, no. Just stay sober. That's all we want. My mother missed that meeting. Uh, My mother said to me, she said, yes, you do, and I want my money back. And she said, go talk to your daddy. He's got numbers. And he did. He had this white cabinet in the kitchen where my father kept the bills and his checkbook and all. He went up in there and bought out this little book. So I started to pay my daddy. Every week, never missed. And that's what I did with the rest of my financial amends. I was taught you go, you make the best deal. Just what it says in the book, right? One of the things, and one of the questions as a sponsor that I get a lot um, from my sponsors, I sponsor sponsors in AA. And a lot of times what they'll come to me and they'll say, oh, I got this guy and this is the situation. And I'm real careful how I answer that because I'm not with this guy. I don't know the whole story all the time, right? So before I try to weigh in on a situation, I try to get as much information as I can. But a lot of it always centers around amends. It always centers around amends. And what should I do and when should I do it? And there's a thing in there, I like to call it the formula. And I teach this to my sponsees. When it's going to involve other people, there is a formula that's in the book. That's what I call it. And it is prayer, consent of those who will be involved, consult, that's with your sponsor or other people in the program with time who can help you, and then you act. The formula, prayer, then you want to get consent, then you want to consult, then you take your action. Never fails to work. So with my mom, um, you know, um, when she got to the end, toward the end, she went to the hospital, it turned out to be for the last time, my sponsor said, okay, it is now time. My mother 
saw me go to three AA meetings a day during the week and four or five on the weekends. My mother saw me bring my first bonfies to her kitchen table and sit down and open the book Alcoholics Anonymous and talk about God. My mother saw me on my knees by the bed in the morning start my day. When I went to my mom to make amends at the hospital, I had a big speech planned out, of course, and, and of course, when I when the moment came, it just went away. And uh, and the only thing that came out of my mouth, Frank said, was, Mama, I'm sorry. That's it. I didn't make a list of all that went on through the years and all. Mama, I'm sorry. And my mother lit up like a Christmas tree. And she said, Kenny, I forgive you. She said, listen, we just wanted the best for you. She said, but I want you to promise me something. She said, I want you to promise me that you'll stay with those people in Alcoholics Anonymous. They were able to do for you what we could not. They were the answer to my prayer. I promised her that I would and I have. My dad... My dad was a man's man. He was a man who went to work every day, took care of his business, and um, I made direct amends to my father. I kept paying him his money. You know, my father lived until I was 18 years sober, so he saw a lot of things, the birth of my children, all that. I mean, we, me and my dad, we went to football games. We had a great time. I got to tell you something. Before I get down from here, at one point he started to do some things after my mother died that I didn't approve of. <laughs> mm. I, I felt like I, you know, like I need to get, I need to get in this. I need to straighten this out. <laughs> but I've been, I've been sponsored, right? I went to my sponsor first to make sure I say the right thing, right? Because we got to get him straightened out. My sponsor looked at me and he said, what right, after all you've done, do you have to pass judgment on your father? Had I opened my mouth and not followed directions, I would have damaged that relationship perhaps irreparably. And I didn't. And he was okay. And, and uh, I was with my dad the night he died. And he just told me, take care of my girls. My girls is grown now. I'm, I'm going to leave this. Because something happened. I had one. I it was across the country. And I asked my sponsor if I could do the amends by mail, he said, if you did the harm by mail. <laughs> so I got on the airplane and went and made the amend. I, I did what I was told. They said, go to any length. I, I did. I just followed directions. For once in my life, stop getting no one ever. Just do what you're told. And I did that. Um, my brother 
died of a head injury. He got hurt in the football scrimmage in Maslin, Ohio. Me and Janelle was down there. We went down to Pro Football Hall of Fame a couple weeks ago. That's in Stark County. And that's where Maslin is. And Maslin and Sandusky used to be the two biggest high school football powers in the Midwest, maybe even in the country. That was back in the day. And uh, we, uh, we used to scrimmage Maslin every year. My brother suffered a head injury down there. I'll talk about that later. But anyway, he died in Maslin. I got sober. And there's a group in Maslin that used to have me come speak every year. And um, I went down there to speak. It was on a Monday night. St. Joe's is the group. And I spoke at the meeting. I told a story about my brother. And there was a thank you line afterward. And a short, stocky guy in a really nice suit walked up to shake my hand. And he said, hey, can I talk to you outside after the meeting? I said, sure. I'm thinking there's a guy that wants to debate the steps or something, right? You know what I mean? And uh, so after the meeting's over and we, I come outside, I had a sponsee with me. His name is Jerry. Me and Jerry walk outside. I'm looking for this guy. And we walk toward the car, and the guy comes from the side of the building out of the shadows Underneath the light, and he's got tears running down his face. And he said, I'm the guy that hit your brother. And he wept. And all I could do was grab him. My sponsee is standing here, and he got tears running down his face. He's, Jerry was four months sober. <sighs> there were some things that this guy didn't know. Okay, this guy was sober. At that time, I want to say 15 years in AA. He was sober longer than I was at this time. He was the head of the Red Cross in Stark County. He was a shoulder-deep member of AA. There were people in that meeting who knew my story, and they knew he was there. He said, I've wanted to try to make amends. I didn't know who to call. What to, He said, and you stood there and you said that. He said, I've carried that since 1972. And I told him, tonight you get free. My brother, they found out, had a blood clot on the side of his brain. And he had migraine headaches for years. Sometimes he used to sit in the living room, turn the TV off, and just sit for hours. And back then, they didn't have CAT scans and all the stuff they got now. And when they did the autopsy, what the doctor said was he could have been walking down the street, and it would have, if it moved, 
he would have collapsed. It just so happened that it happened out there. And I was able to share some things with that young man that evening. And, um, you know, I came, I came back home and I told this story to my father and he wept. He said, you mean he's carried that all this time? And he told me, he said, I drank to kill the pain of that until the pain from drinking got too great. And he said, that's when I got sober. The ninth step, new freedom, new happiness. Brian says something, and I have found this to be true. We would not regret the past, no wish to shut the door on it. Every time that I have an opportunity to share about these things with somebody else, whether I sponsor them or not, more healing takes place. It is seems like everything in the spiritual world is like opposite, isn't it? It would seem like the more you, you know how people avoid talking about stuff because it's going to hurt them? We talk about stuff and it helps us. The realm of the spirit. And so the more that we have the opportunity to share the things that we go through with others, the more freedom we get. The more, the more happiness we get, the more usefulness we get, the closer to God we get. God bless. Thank you.